Malcolm Honline joins us in a minute. Two weeks from now, he will be in Puerto Vallarta. I mention it because I assume that uh, that this is the last opportunity, basically, a week or two before Pesach, for someone to make a decision to spend Pesach with Malcolm and to go to this unique program that's known as Pesach in Vallarta. Go to PesachInVallarta.com or dial the following number, 786-290-5919. Again, that's 786-290-5919 for information. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us on a Friday morning here for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. No, thank you. We should remind them that Vallarta is with two L's, V-A-L-L-A-R-T-A. I see. People ask me all the time, how do you spell Vallarta? (laughs) Because they think there's a Y in the middle there. I see you've memorized it over the last couple of months, just to make sure you have the information at the ready. (laughs) But please, please, but I beg of you. Don't change my pronunciation. Don't no, um, don't American. the right pronunciation. Don't Americanize it on my airwaves. It's Pesach okay. in Vallarta. Pesach okay. in Vallarta. Because it ends with an A, right? <laughs> anyway, big week. Lots of news. An election coming up on Tuesday. We'll start with the news that the remains of uh, Zach Baumel, who um, grew up in Brooklyn at the age of ten. As his classmate, Dr. Dietrich, reminded us yesterday, at the age of 10, his family made Aliyah. Goes to a Hezder Yeshiva and follows the route of so many and unfortunately does not return uh, from the 1982 Lebanon War. I think the story, even to those who have, excuse me, even to those who were not alive when this happened, because a lot of young people in our community took an interest in this story, I must say, Baruch Hashem. And we're fascinated that Israel was able to do this 37 years later. Um, uh, he, he, he was in our thoughts and prayers in some synagogues, literally on a weekly, if not more regular basis, for 37 years with the other MIAs. And, of course, we know what happened this week. Malcolm, we, we're, we're so curious about the details. Back in the 80s, and, and you reminded us of this uh, at the very beginning of, of your involvement here with us on the show, um, essentially, Lebanon then, as it, I think we could say, still is today, was a proxy of Syria, correct? I mean, today we'd say more Iran. But in those days, Syria was basically calling the shots in that war. Would that be an accurate uh, assessment? It, yes, I think it would be an accurate assessment. And, you're to- and we're talking specifically the battle at Sultan Yaqub right. and the, in the first uh, Lebanon war. And this was in, um, I think he was he abducted on June 11th of 1982, and then um, I have to say that to credit the government of Israel and others, and you know that was the reason why I went to Syria to meet Assad, was primarily to try and get the remains of the three, uh, and um, to talk about Eli Cohen, but Eli Cohen was a non-starter for them, and uh, Assad denied knowing where they were, and he said, if I had such a riches, you don't think I would trade for it. Uh, there was an investigation done. The Israeli government had long tracked this, and information came out that enabled them to, to identify. But obviously the circumstances of going in would have been very difficult. You don't risk the lives of others, to, to um, even though the Russian soldiers and others went into this area to to get the um, the remains. And the reason they were able to, this was in the Yarmouk refugee camp near Damascus, and after the ISIS withdrew from the area, then the Syrian and the and Russian soldiers 
went in. They couldn't go in as long as ISIS was in control. And this meant piecing together the information from others who had fought in the battle and who had information. And I know that Israel did remarkable things trying to get it and to repatriate the, the remains of, uh, of Ali Cohen, who was a spy and, and caught by the Assyrians and executed. Uh, and there were many books and uh, even a movie about him. But these three, the, you know, the families were the true heroes. They never for a single day gave up hope. And unfortunately, Mr. Baumol passed away. But Mrs. Baumol uh, is is uh, alive and at least gets to see her son come to Jewish Kvura. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the Gemara tells us that until the families never find peace until the loved one is, is buried. And this was certainly true. The, the dedication, the tireless devotion, traveling all over the world on, and grasping on every straw. And they often spent time in my office uh, and working out of there and with people who work with us who who were um, totally committed to to trying to recover the remains. Israel spent millions and millions of dollars on this, and this uh, and and you know there were criticisms always of the government and saying that they were indifferent or they abandoned this. It, 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 uh, my experience is that it was not true. He, they they were committed all the time. There was somebody assigned as a liaison to these families, and it was replaced as they left the service. Uh, military service there are, there are there are a couple of confusing things here in in terms of the story the let's assume for a moment that we take Assad at his word that if he had this type of valuable you know uh, chip you know he'd, he'd be using it to his advantage that would indicate that once these boys were these boys remains at this point we know that they were remains as opposed to them being alive once they were um, uh, taken and and buried, it it would indicate that he had no idea where they were buried. Does that make sense that he would not have knowledge of where you know these again what he would consider to be very valuable uh, you know commodities would be buried? Would it be possible he wouldn't know where they were? It is possible. Uh, some would say not probable, but certainly possible. And less likely is that Arafat didn't know. If you remember, he returned half the dog chain, um, and the um, uh, but he refused to to ever. And you know, he was approached many times about it as well. So were. And how uh, do you surmise that he got a hold of that because of his close relationship with who? With Assad? No, but they're buried in a refuge, a Palestinian refugee camp. No, I understand that. So it could be that. No, it could be the Palestinian forces or or others who who took the body. You know, they were seen on a tank, and I brought that picture to to Assad when he said they didn't know uh, from from Sultan Yaqub. It was captured on a tank. There were pictures supposedly in Damascus on a where they were paraded. So it was. There's a lot of sources, possible sources, where they could have gotten the. Uh, a dog tag could have fallen off. It could have, right. um, you know, been taken by somebody who then turned it in. Understood. And so it's Palestinian forces who are then transporting his body to that refugee camp, uh, burying him there. And, and, or, and it could be Syrian forces as well. They were working together. And then on the right. intelligence side, at least the, I mean, I know that we don't get all the information, obviously, but at least based on the articles we're reading, on the intelligence side, Russia has to act with with Syrian forces, right, with mm-hmm. cooperation of Syrian forces in order 
to carry out this mission in order to, you know, use the Israeli intelligence and, you know, on the ground, so to speak, and finally discover where he is, where he is buried. And this is all being done, you know, at, at the behind whose back behind the, the back of the Palestinian refugee camp or in, in other words, what I'm trying to get at is if Russia and Syria are cooperating on this and this is their effort. Uh, the, I mean, I would think again that if Syria is in charge, if Syria has this, if the leaders of Syria have the opportunity to turn them over, if they wish, then then whose back are they going around in order to discover them, in order to to use the Israeli intelligence to find them? Well, I mean, Russian troops are there. They're not really going behind anybody's back. They they had to wait till ISIS was out of the refugee camp to go in, but they are doing it. Uh, I mean, without the Palestinians knowing, because they probably would resist it. Uh, and the they didn't just bring the remains of the one person. There were, I think, there were remains of about 20 who were taken out, and through various means of DNA testing, et cetera, they identified the remains of uh, Zachary Bamel. Um, but the the Putin, if you saw, it, took credit for this, which surprising and, and saying Russian troops risk their lives and whatever went in right. because it, it, it's uh, first of all the Armut camp is a hotbed of, of internal strife and fighting both inside outside and uh, with divergent uh, groups within the camps the presence of Russian troops would have been noticed it was not something you could just do you know on the cover of night right and so this and that includes Syrian troops they, and, they and as well they right? took Syrian troops right. as well that's right. the reports I mean We'll wait to, as the details will no doubt filter out, but the, that's the story as we know it. Who were who are the other twenty? Do we know? I mean, are those Israeli soldiers? Who are they? Well, there were others who were killed in the battle at uh, Sultan Yaqub, but it hasn't been. Um, they have not been identified, as far as I know yet. All right, because we always it may not be just uh, Jewish. It could be that there were others who who were buried there, but in particular, we know that there were, I think, twenty twenty killed in the, in that battle. Before Thanks, we before we talk about the, the 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 cynical outlook about the you know the timing of this with the election on Tuesday, what, what about the practical outlook? You know, someone like myself sits here and observes all this and hears the news, and and I can't get off of the theme that Israel is in such a a prominent political position right now in this world, and is so vital to world powers, i.e. Russia and others, is so vital to them that they will overextend themselves to do something like this for Israel. And because this was now discovered, the timing of it in that manner, because it was discovered now, I would argue never has Israel been in such a positive position like this. Is is that the reality, or am I fooling myself that, that, that Russia really did go out of its way to simply do a favor for Israel, and Israel is, it, it, and the rest of the world is not at the feet of Israel to the degree that I think they are. Well, I don't think that the world is at the feet of Israel. I do think Israel's standing in the world has improved, and the fact that Netanyahu was there and met with Putin this week after having had a meeting not that long ago um, uh, indicates that there is a, a, a close relationship, and yet on, on a lot of key decisions, there still are tensions on the ground between uh, Russia and Israel, after, especially after the plane was taken down by Syrian forces, but Israel was blamed that Putin defended Israel in that instance, but against his own military, which which were very insistent on the charges and, and targeting Israel. 
uh, obviously the situation on the ground. It's not in Russia's interest to have the Iranians uh, develop. So what they do is for their own purposes and their own agenda within the region and within Syria to maintain their control and feel threatened as Iran is expanding rapidly its footprint across the thing, across the region, uh, in, in replacing populations, Sunni populations with Shiites in there, and, and doing it in a way that will give them permanent access and certainly control of the trans-nation uh, highway, uh, creating the, the Shiite crescent uh, across uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, uh, from Tehran. So let me ask the question differently. Is Iran re- really angry? At, is Russia trying, is Russia using this opportunity to show Iran that they're ready to align with Israel when episodes like this happen? Do they do this specifically because they, they know that Iran is watching and when a gesture like this is made by Russia to Israel, it makes an impact on them? I, I don't know that that's the case. Uh, it's an interesting theory, but I don't know that... Um um, you know that that is part of, the, of their account on, in this regard. I think this is really between Israel and Russia. Uh, whether the, how the Iranians react or don't react to it is, is first of all, they haven't reacted yet, but right. we'll have to see. But the Russians have a, a very mixed relationship. It serves their purposes right now with Iran and Turkey, but they also know in the long run it's a negative for them. And for the what they want to do in terms of re, re, retaining their bases there and not having to invest uh, forces and not being responsible for the reconstruction. Actually, nobody wants to be responsible for the reconstruction, and nobody came forward with money when there was the appeal for the hundreds of billions you're going to need for uh, for Syrian um, to rebuild Syria. Uh, they couldn't even get a minimal amount uh, committed. So, you know, you can't look beyond the surface right now. We will. And know much more as things come out and see the reactions uh, to it. But th- this doesn't have strategic implications. You know, it doesn't change Iran's status in Syria. So it's of less concern to them at this moment. They have such tremendous economic challenges right now. They're fighting for their their economic life. You know, the the three of the eight countries that got the waivers that we discussed in the past to, to um, allow them to continue to receive oil have cut it already to zero. And the other five, the administration is pressing to go to zero. This means the 1.5 million barrels a day less that, that Iran is getting is $10 billion a year at a time when their currency is in free fall. They're, it's almost valueless. The the um, inflation rate is going to be seven. Some people say even double that percent. The um, uh, they're blaming Europe now. They're attacking Europe and saying that rather than stopping the eco terrorism as they call U.S. policy, they're seeing them falling in line and, and going after Iran for what they call their defensive missile program. But as you know, the more and more information that has been leaking from the documents Israel took shows that they are building new facilities, that they are advancing their uh, program, and built an underground facility where they were doing testing. It's called uh, Project Midan. Uh, So the Iranians have so much on their plate right now that I don't know that that the the release of the body. Obviously, it's a big victory for Netanyahu in a sense. Uh, I don't think he'll politicize it. 
I think that the people of Israel are united on this across all the party lines. And the and and generally on these issues, security issues, there's not a big difference between blue and white and, and right. the Likud policy. Uh, when you sat with Assad, he understood the importance of Baumol to the Jewish people internationally? Well, uh, it went back and forth for a couple of years before I agreed to go because I said the only condition on which I would go, and he had invited me, was if if they addressed this issue. And he said, he, then when I got there, he, they, they, you know, he sent the Arab diplomats who kept coming, and I kept showing the picture and saying he can't deny that he knows. But then it was advisable for me to go and confront him directly about it, and he discussed it openly with me. And as I said, he. Um, and if he gave you that that somewhat cynical response, then why? Well, cynical, I think, in this case, he may have been practical may response, have been real, but. But why is that so different than the Ellie Cohen response? Because they they look at Ellie Cohen as an embarrassment. Ellie Cohen's a completely different story. It was a huge issue. I mean, you had somebody who became very close to Assad's father, uh, had you know infiltrated the highest echelons of the Syrian government, was responsible for planting trees, you know, in the Golan that during the Six Day War enabled Israel to target right. and the facilities, uh, the personnel. Um, so that was that's seen in a very different light. And I met with Mrs. Cohen, and it remains a tragedy for the family not having the remains back and giving him Jewish kvur. Uh, but and Israel again, I think it's unfair for people to say that they've abandoned any of these causes. I know for sure that uh, that has not been the case, not of this government and not of some previous government. Um, yeah, and it's interesting to see her reaction to uh, to everything that happened this week with the Baumol. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and AchimSiegel.com, on the AchimSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Um, I know, well, <laughs> you just said he probably won't politicize it, but... And I'm sorry for trumpeting the the cynic's view of what happened this week, but nonetheless, it is it is hard to avoid thinking that with the photo op that he enjoyed, um, and again, you know, I I, I understand that uh, that obviously there's a very serious element to what happened this week, and believe me, I'm not I'm not minimizing it, but you know, you just said the entire Jewish people were behind this cause, and he is the face of this cause now. He's the one who stood there with Putin, meaning Netanyahu. He's the one who stood there with Putin and accepted the remains and, and, and you know, and was at the funeral and, uh, you know, as prime minister. I, I just, you know, I, I, I hesitate, but I won't hesitate enough not to say it in terms of an April surprise, like we discussed last week's March surprise from Washington. I, I mean, the timing is, some would say, bizarre. So what would you say to those cynics who are, thinking about Tuesday's election when they see the prime minister standing there in Russia and then flying back with the remains of Zach Baumel. I, I'm not enough of a cynic to, to uh, right now, I think uh, we can celebrate the moment. Uh, as I said, I don't think he, he will. He, I think he'll be careful not to exploit it uh, too, too blatantly. Obviously, there are benefits that inure to him by the release right now, as it did, the, you know, the visit with Putin and the visit with President Trump last week, uh, who received him so well, and unfortunately he had to cut the trip short and, and go back because of the rockets. But 
Um, Benefits. You know, when, when you're the sitting prime minister, you, as any incumbent, has advantages. Right. Right. And they they would be stupid not to, to, to take it. Why would you delay it? Uh, you know, until after the election, right. whether they timed it for this. As I said, the opportunity came when ISIS was out of there. Beyond that, I don't know, the history books will have to tell us if if there's uh, something more. But there's such a full agenda, and the prime minister today has, aside from, you know, the personal challenges and the election, you know, he's looking at a region where there isn't a stable country from the Mediterranean to um, to Turkey, to Iran, right. Iraq, right. That's Syria, what, that, Le- Lebanon, Jordan. That is what's so, that's what that's what's so fascinating. Watching someone like Putin behave in a manner as if he really needs Israel. That's why it's not far fetched to those who observe this election to say, you know, if Putin was voting in this election or if he had his preference, the likelihood is he'd want Netanyahu to continue as leader of Israel. Well, he met with him and meeting with him the week before an election. He understands the implications of it. And obviously they have a, a, a good relationship, something they understand. By the way, he may not be far off from what the people of the state of Israel believe. because Well, the polls are, are you know, the polls end today, so there's no more polling. But there's been a lot of last-minute rush of information and uh, data that has been coming in. And you see that... The three polls, the three major polls, didn't agree with each other at all. One had BB leading, one had uh, Blue and White leading, and we could leading, and then Blue and White leading, and one then had um, a four-seat difference. And uh, you know, so the range is expanding, and the uh, possibilities. There are 40 parties. There are at least a dozen that won't make the threshold, and many others who, who are in danger of not make, making the threshold. The, uh, some of the polls, the one that showed labor with 12 seats, everybody else debunked it and said they're not going to get more than nine, eight. The, and the, uh, it really, I believe that most people will make a decision once they go into the booth. There's a big undecided uh, group. There are campaigns to get specific target audiences to support different parties. The surprise of Fagelin with his uh, marijuana um, uh, legalization. Theme. And the libertarian agenda, though, of course, he has a very – he's the right wing. But the key is not just looking at individual parties, but where the two blocks. And right now it's clear that the right wing block is, is ahead and that Netanyahu can cobble together um, and a, um, a coalition with more than 61 votes. But it will depend, A, on the numbers and what President Rivlin, who he gives the first opportunity to form a government. And the religious parties will be key in this as well. Many of them don't want to associate with uh, Lapid or have reservations with others. Um, and, it, you know, it, it can bring a Lieberman and the religious parties, even though they're hotly contesting each other over issues not, not for the same vote. Is so there a it's a complicated ch- picture yet, and and we'll have to see how how it may not be even Tuesday night before we know. Is there a chance Lieberman does not make the threshold? Yes, there's a very good chance he does not make a threshold. Again, it depends on the turnout. Depends on whether the people are afraid of losing their vote. When you're very close to the 3.25 percent threshold that's necessary, then when they go into the booth, they say, "If I if I vote for him and he doesn't get in, then I lose my vote." So I'd rather they would prefer to vote for someplace where it would matter and then may switch it. Others feel very connected and therefore will still vote and saying, you know, we can help put them over. 
there is very creative advertising. A lot of it, I think, not appropriate, but uh, uh, very creative this this uh, election cycle. And it will be, um, you know, it's really, I think, boiled down to Netanyahu. It's a it's a referendum on Netanyahu in many respects. It's Gantz versus Netanyahu. The other parties, you know, individuals don't seem to have emerged as very significant, although they're all campaigning and. Out there, even Sar has defended uh, BB, and you see more unity in the Likud party. Um, the, the polls show that the rotation idea between Gantz and, and Lapid has hurt him in the election, that uh, if it was Gantz alone, that he would have done better. But again, you know, the speculation on the part of the, you know, the, the interpretation of the votes and what people, what the pollsters have uh, determined. So... It's 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 a fluid situation because it's a matter of numbers. You know, a few numbers here or there can make a big difference. But the left block, seeing the central left block getting uh, more than 61 right now, is a stretch. Uh, and not only that, but if he play, if in fact Fagelin and the religious parties do as well as some think they will, then Netanyahu could end up with over 70 votes, which, 70 seats, which would be unbelievable. Uh, and what I said earlier about, you know, Putin having the same attitude as it seems the electorate has, um, it seems that people, I don't know, I mean, we're 6,000 miles away, but there's a, it's, it, there seems to be a complacency um, that really there's nobody better or different enough from Netanyahu to to make another choice. And, and that makes one wonder, if not for the indictments, would he be showing landslide numbers in these polls at this point? It's very possible. The indictment certainly hurt him, and uh, people don't know whether he'll be able to serve out the term. Will he be make a deal over it? You know, as again, that's why many say this is really BB running against BB right. uh, more than against the other parties, and that it becomes a test. There is a, you know, after so many years of people, young people especially, say they want something different. Uh, they don't believe that there's that vast a difference between. Uh, blue and whites, um, certainly on the security, on foreign policy issues, there doesn't seem to be uh, a big difference. And Gantz has learned to speak, but the, again, many of them are making mistakes and, and saying things that get them into trouble, uh, which is not unusual in Israel. It's uh, more the norm than the <laughs> exception in, in the Israeli campaigns. And then they try to be, um, let's say, very creative. But, um, uh, you know, when Gantz, the headline today that he hopes that Putin is not working for Netanyahu and that Trump isn't working for Netanyahu. It hurts them, he knows, because when you're the incumbent, as is true here, you have a lot of advantages. You create the agenda. You can do things that uh, others campaigning can't to get the headlines. And, you know, when Pompeo came to Israel and uh, when they see the situation in Lebanon where Pompeo warned the Lebanese against this new factory for precision missiles, for guidance systems, assistance for missiles, and the U.S. consistently coming down and, uh, and certainly the recognition of the Golan, the U.S.-Israel relationship is very important to Israelis. They get it. And if they think there's a hostile relationship with somebody, I think it would be hard for them. Um and then we see also that the F-35 is not going to Turkey. This is very important because it leaves Israel with its F-35s uh, unique in the region, and and the fear that they could be used by others or fall into other hands, or be or what Turkey might do in the future uh, with them. 
everything has uh, has significance, and especially because Turkey is the maintenance center and repair center for Europe for the F-35s. Um, and we've stopped already the equipment, and it looks like we won't sell them the F-35s as long as they're buying the S-400 systems from, um, uh, from Russia. And they look also at the situation in Gaza and the PA, where we see uh, a lot more and more instability. The PA is only paying half of the salaries of people, not allowing now Palestinians anymore. There are 50,000 a year who go to Israeli hospitals in the West Bank and Gaza. Now they're saying you have to go to Jordan and Egypt, which will create more tension within it, uh, the, the, the areas under their control. Uh, and the uh, obviously the situation in Gaza has not improved and does not improve um, and you have more and more resentment about it. There's so many issues, and they get overshadowed sometimes in political campaigns. But Israelis are aware. You know, they know what's going on. They're much more so, let's say, than most Americans are about our security situations and the, and threats to to American troops or American uh, national interests. So the the um, um, and the instability in the region, which is what why I mentioned it before. Mm-hmm. You can't look at Israel in isolation when you, you literally Jordan is in real serious problems. When the Bedouins start, or the most loyal troops to the king, start protesting and mentioning him and talking him by name, when you, you see some of the other, um, uh, virtually every country is unstable, except for Israel in the region. And uh, I mean, Iran may be, may be relatively uh, stable. But I think that the regime could be in big trouble, and the same with Turkey, as the election in Turkey showed, when he lost Ankara and Istanbul and I think 37 other cities, the main urban areas, went against Erdogan and his uh, his party. Now I have to see what what he'll do. You know, he has a history of replacing those mayors and taking unilateral actions that will undo the election result. But he can't ignore, and even said so publicly, the the message. It's primarily an economic message, but the same message is emanating from Iran, which is why we have to keep the sanctions, and the U.S. announcing that there'll be more is very important. And what I referenced about the countries that have uh, cut back um, on the, those who had the waivers are already uh, cutting back. The economic situation inside the country, which, now, which after the floods of recent weeks now had earthquakes, and of course, they blame the United States for blocking aid and stuff, which is certainly not true. And uh, we'll, we'll have to see. But the administration certainly has, um, has stood with Israel, and that is a big advantage to any candidate. Did the visit of the uh, Brazilian president have any pre-election impact? Uh, well, it shows that uh, Israel is open to more and more countries. As you know, South American countries were generally... Not as only the prime minister visited there, the first prime minister, sitting prime minister to do so. And uh, we still have a very mixed situation. A lot depends on what happens in Venezuela. If the fall of the Maduro government would make a big difference. Uh, Iran's, um, it's the fulcrum of Iran's activities throughout South America, which are vast and tens of thousands of agents working there. But and so Bolsonaro's visit, he is a very religious uh, evangelical and has talked about Israel, but he did not announce the opening of an embassy, as he had promised during the campaign, but instead an, an economic interest uh, section or, or this, uh, office that will function in Jerusalem. It's an important step towards uh, uh, an embassy, but it is not to the embassy that 
people had expected, and he had to cut short his visit for some reason. Uh, but again, Israel it shows Netanyahu with world leaders, and many of them arriving uh, from all over African countries, the Bolsonaro, others who, who have been there in recent weeks, uh, only bolsters his image as uh, an important player on the world stage. By the way, how soon after Tuesday could the president of Israel ask the prime minister or whomever he chooses to form a government? I think he has seven days. That, that sticks in my head. To he, He'll meet he, – generally what they do is they meet with all the parties and ask them what their preference is. And it's not – so, again, it's not just the absolute return of any one party unless – one is so overwhelming, um, but it, uh, you know, and his relationship with Netanyahu is not good. So there's a lot of speculation that he would, and Netanyahu has, has said it that he would turn to um, another party, to Blue and White, or somebody to form the government. Uh, I don't think that that will be the case if the numbers, you know, present themselves. He's um, uh, he has said that that he he would uh, look at it objectively. But the tensions between him and the prime minister have, been, have grown only worse over time. So <clears throat> I think he has up to a week to designate a party. Then the party that they designate is given, um, I think, 30 days. They have two chances. But after that, it automatically goes to another party. Or if none, none of them can form a coalition, then it would they would go back to another election. But that's unlikely, I think. You will get a coalition, and um, by one side or the other, if if uh, Netanyahu can't, then Gantz and, and his parties will will try to do it. So next week, when we speak, we'll certainly be able to do the math. We just may not have an official declaration yet from the president of who's going to be invited to form the government. You may not have that, but I think pretty much you'll know. You may not know on Tuesday night, as I said, because you have so many small parties right. to know who's going to cross the threshold. You know, 3.25, it, it sounds like very little, but it it's, means four seats. So you have uh, at least a dozen parties that are teetering on the, on the brink and may not make it. All right. Uh, you know I've spent a lot of time and we've discussed um... – how Baruch Hashem, where we are witnessing this incredible role that Israel now has in the world, and you know, again, for anybody who's over a certain age, it's and uh, th- they appreciate the miracle. For those of us who are literally living through it, we don't always see the miracle from within uh, when we're watching it from this vantage point. But you get my point, and it's and it's just incredible in the context of Jewish history to see what's going on and the position that Israel enjoys politically. At the same time, Malcolm. Uh, Israel Apartheid Week at Columbia University, swastikas in Brooklyn, uh, Jews worship the devil flyers on cars in California, Rashida Tlaib not hesitating at all to associate and to take pictures of open anti-Semites, drivers in Europe refusing to take Jews. Those drivers, thank God, were removed by the car-sharing company, but just the, the nerve to go ahead and make a declaration like that. So now with this incredible dichotomy of Israel enjoying the position that it has and the respect that it has, and at the same time, anti-Semites, including on Ivy League campuses, um, feeling very comfortable with their point of view and stating that point of view publicly. How would you say we reconcile this, and what can you tell people who have to fight these battles literally on the front? So we have to... The, the number of incidents is is staggering, the, um, we had yesterday an incident at Kingsborough 
Community College, which has become a hotbed against Professor Goldberg uh, and and uh, Goldstein, and yesterday against uh, Jeff Lax, professor in, uh, there, where you have a hostile faculty group, not even students, the students as well, but <coughs> faculty group that harassed and and uh, um, I don't know if they assaulted him, but they certainly physically harassed him and endangered him. That at Columbia at NYU, in fact, we are having a meeting this week at NYU of the conference with students who have tales of horror that they talk about and that many students cannot fear wearing a yarmulke or a mug and dove it or on, on New York campuses. We're not talking about in isolated areas. And uh, together with the Chelsea Football Club, which has taken lead internationally in fighting anti-Semitism as in sports, but also in other areas, um, they are involved with this. We're doing an event at NYU huh. uh, because we're trying to bring the message to campus. We have uh, some courageous president, the president of Fitzer College, uh, Andy Oliver, uh, who has stood against the students' uh, resolution, and now the students are organizing, or the anti-Israel forces are organizing to try and remove him for it. The, the, um, we saw it at uh, Duke and uh, University of North Carolina, I think, together did a, a horrific seminar, showed eight pro-Palestinian films, and, and all the speakers were, were one-sided, and using university money. Uh, at the University of Michigan, uh, they had, they had uh, extremists from South Africa coming there, you know, pushing the apartheid message week, apartheid message, and, you know, this is the annual apartheid, uh, uh, you know, ex exaggeration period mm -hmm. where they do events on, on campuses. And you add to that then the rise of anti-Semitic incidents, uh, which is uh, beyond what people know, because sometimes they dismiss some of the incidents. So much goes unreported, and then if it gets reported, it's not reported as a hate crime. But we have seen the sharp increase in the number of hate crimes. We see legislation in Congress uh, addressing it because there's a, a universal recognition that the problem is getting more and more serious. We already see it in Europe, and I have to credit the Lawfare Project um, this week went to the courts about the anti-Shrita legislation, and it got referred to the European Court of Justice, which could either overthrow them or, God forbid, substantiate them and, and sustain them, and we will be in a much worse situation. But the um, you know, the administration has three people uh, dedicated to, to religious and other freedom. Um, Ken Marcus, who will be coming to New York next week, who is, works at the Department of Education, focusing on anti-Semitism, looking at cricket, looking at domestic anti-Semitism. Um, Congress on both sides of the aisle have uh, have taken it up, but we still see them appearing, people appearing with anti-Semites, appearing with uh, people who are who are hostile and making uh, comments. I heard just this morning earlier a report, uh, supposedly from the West Bank, on a public radio station. It was just horrific. It was totally one-sided and and horrific, and that is poisoning the minds of, of young people and of others, mostly basing it on the ignorance, and in, unfortunately, even in our own community. And we have, um, you know, we have to take it much more seriously, and, and also to give the good news. You know that yesterday at the Ad Vashem dedication, five German companies each gave a million euros to, uh, to build the new center where you'll have documentation from 131,000 survivor testimonies and half a million photographs and other things. Um, and we've seen also where uh, people who have career
courageously stood up, um, the president of Cornell, people have to write them, have to show them, and those who are graduates of the universities or have ties to them or to those who donate to these universities, we've got to bring the message home. Many times people are not sensitive to it, and yet now we are seeing physical assaults against Jews. As you mentioned, the, the Brooklyn statistic, but it's it's true many places around the country, and we have to um, take it far more seriously. And we're we have exercises in Washington this week with the Department of Homeland Security and Jewish leadership. To- oh, and by the way, you mentioned to me off the air we got we have to be sympathetic to some of the students who are having trouble staying on these college campuses and, and undergoing all of this pressure. And campuses that we never even knew had problems. I was speaking in one place, and a a young woman had returned from Wellesley to come home because she said she couldn't take it. And not a particularly activist uh, student, but uh, coming from a committed Jewish family, could not take it. And I think that this is true, much more true than than people know, and the number of incidents is far greater than people realize. And, and, you know, we we, we read about something, then we go on with life uh, as usual. And I think we have to be much more adamant. And if a a Kingsborough Community College can can have this kind of activities on its campus, and there are lawsuits and other things being filed to to try and address it, but, you know, it shouldn't shouldn't even be a thought. It shouldn't even be something that is in any way tolerated, especially when government funds are involved in these institutions. Yeah. Malcolm, I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we will speak Bezrat Hashem next week. God willing, have a good Shabbos and a good Chodesh, and uh, it should be the month of redemption for all of us. Amen. And, oh, I'm so glad you said that, and I thank Malcolm for his words. I'm so glad Malcolm just said that. A week from now is uh, Shabbos Hagadol, Shabbat Hagadol. May I please encourage all rabbis, all great rabbinic leaders, to utilize the custom of the lecture of Shabbat Hagadol, the Shabbos Hagadol Drosha, to address important national issues to the Jewish people. I know there are many, many important halachic issues. I know that there are many areas of uh, halachic minutia, not to uh, minimize it, but sometimes the de- I should say halachic details, that would be a better way of saying it, halachic details that need to be reviewed, especially before a holiday. And very often the uh, the drusha is used for that purpose, and I understand that. Uh, but in this time that we are witnessing uh, what the state of Israel means uh, to us as a Jewish people and to the world, and with the position that Israel is enjoying at this moment in the world, and with the role we can have in making that go even further, essentially, as you might suspect, what I have in mind is that the future of the Jewish people is in the state of Israel. And during this month of Geula, during this month of redemption that Malcolm just alluded to, I would recommend that all the rabbinic leaders out there try very hard to incorporate into your discussions, especially Shabbos HaGadol, with all your discussions about Pesach and the month of Nisan, some type of message to your constituents about the national message of Eretz Yisrael and the future of the Jewish people being there. Let's not make the mistake that was made too often in Jewish history to uh, have the opportunity to grow the land, and in this case, the state of Israel, and not take advantage of it.